Today on Pence Exchange, the dynamics of beliefs, tradition and change. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Nathan Nunn. He is the Frederick E. A. Professor of Economics at Harvard University. A native Canadian, Nathan received his bachelor's degree in economics from Simon Fraser University and his PhD in economics from the University of Toronto. He's a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. His main research interests are in political economy, economic history, economic development, cultural economics, and international trade. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Culture and tradition are important determinants of human behavior that are usually perceived to be outside the proper scope of economics. However, an economic framework of their study may be not only feasible, but also necessary to understand the dynamics of decision-making and their implications in terms of potential for cooperation and the risks of disagreement. Today, Nathan Nunn will join us to discuss his most recent paper on why culture matters, when relying on tradition may pay off, and when it doesn't, and what we can do about it. Nathan, I would like to start by asking how relevant are cultural explanations of decision-making compared to the rational calculus approach that attributes them to immediate political economy incentives? Yeah, I, th I think the past uh, decades of research in behavioral economics uh, definitely speak to this. And if you think of the evidence that's been accumulating from, from that field alone, uh, let alone uh, from other fields like cultural economics, you see that kind of a view of human decision-making that's purely rational, uh, rational, in, um, that doesn't have emotions, it doesn't have morals, uh, doesn't quite fit the data. And so I think empirically, um, it's important to bring in other, other determinants of decision-making. I think just through also people's own introspection, you can think about what motivates you. Uh, and we do have emotions. We do have beliefs, values about what's right and wrong that matter to us. We do have gut feelings. And so, um, so I think that's huge, hugely important. Um, and then if you think about, you know, you mentioned political economy, what are in our institutions based on? Uh, I think it's pretty clear, particularly, particularly if you think of the United States currently, that people's deeply held values do then affect their political beliefs and their beliefs in the way laws and institutions are shaped. So, so I think it's pretty clear, as you say, that all of these things are connected and they're uh, important. Would you mind summarizing your cultural transmission model? Why does tradition may, may be effective and why may generate persistence and what you call belief mismatches? Yeah, so I'm happy to uh, talk about the model, which is um, a model that I've um, that I discuss in a 2021 paper with Paolo Giuliano that came out in the Review of Economic Studies. And also it's a model I discuss in my forthcoming paper that's coming out in the May, May papers and proceedings of the AER. It's really actually not, uh, wouldn't be correct to call it my model. I would call it Alan Rogers model, which is a, a 1988 article in American Anthropologist. And it's kind of the uh, a workhorse model from evolutionary anthropology. And so the model basically uh, allows for the endogenous emergence of culture and tra tra 
culture and tra tradition and the transmission of culture. Uh, and so what is culture? These are values and beliefs which are in, uh, in people's minds. And these beliefs motivate them to take certain actions, right? And what is tradition? It's the transmission of these values and beliefs from parents to children, from one generation to the next. And so in the model, basically, individuals have to decide what to do. They can be rational. This comes at a cost. They have to go out, collect information, and choose the rational action. Or they can actually rely on their values and beliefs that are transmitted from their parents. And in the model, what you find is uh, under very general conditions that individuals who uh, make decisions based on the values and beliefs uh, of their parents uh, or of those from the previous generation, uh, those individuals arise in equilibrium, that it's optimal for people to act in this manner. So I think one thing about the model that's powerful is it provides a motivation in a structural, in a structured framework, a rational framework for why people will uh, behave in a way that we might not call rational or by a traditional definition of rational. Um, so what the model then shows is, or one implication of the model is then you do have persistence. So a shock in the past through the transmission of culture and tradition over time uh, will have effects for many, many generations, right? And the idea here is that people's values and beliefs in, uh, cause, cause behavior that's slow moving over time. So if the environment changes, the optimal action changes because we're not uh, rational, Instead, we're relying on the values and beliefs that are transmitted from previous generations. Sometimes we'll make the wrong decision, right? When, when we do rely on culture and tradition. Uh, and then, then that's mismatch. When our decision or our action uh, isn't perfectly matched for the current environment, right? And so just to step back and summarize, culture and tradition emerges because it provides a, a cognitive shortcut, right? We don't need to reinvent the wheel every generation Instead, we can listen to our parents and say, oh, well, this is the way you did it. I'm going to just uh, adopt those same actions, right? And that works as long as the environment doesn't change. Once it changes, then what my parents did might not be optimal for what I did. And that shortcut won't work. And then that's when we get mismatch. So, so culture and tradition has costs and benefits. The benefits are it's this kind of hack or heuristic that allows an efficient way to make decisions. Uh, that's the benefit. The cost is sometime it can be wrong, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's basically the model in a nutshell. What role would uncertainty play in determining the benefits of tradition? If I read correctly, if uncertainty is significant, maybe in the process of assessing the true state of the world may be impossible, which can make tradition even more appealing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so in the model, you know, it's behavioral in the sense that an equilibrium outcome is that people act in a behavioral manner or what people would often call behavioral manner with, with biases or uh, certain heuristics that are not rational. Where does this emerge? It just, the one assumption there is um, there is some imperfect information or you can think of it as uncertainty and it takes effort for people to learn this, the state of the world. So if you think of uncertainty, meaning, oh, it's more difficult for us to figure out what's going on. Exactly as you said, in equilibrium, we're going to rely more on these heuristics or on culture, on traditions passed down from generation to generation, and less on our own own independent thinking. So, so exactly uh, your intuition there is exactly right. The more uncertain or complex the world is, the more we rely on um, traditions, culture, morals that are uh, passed down from generation to generation. 
And that's kind of interesting if you think of different domains, like you can think of for what questions in the world might we rely on culture and tradition? It, it really says the prediction is, well, the more complex the questions and the more difficult the questions, the more that we're going to then rely on, on uh, tr values and, and, and traditions. And you, you can kind of think about, well, how does that jive or how does uh, with what's going on in the U.S. today, for example? Uh, lots of these issues are kind of complex issues and they do seem to be motivated or, 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 or people are motivated by their emotions, by their morality, by, by, by values and not by kind of rational thinking about policies. So it seems like we will always rely on tradition to solve questions about the nature of God and something like that, which are inherently complex, right? Yeah, exactly. So the afterlife, <laughs> things about morality, like, you know, uh, views about abortion, which are related to religion, uh, things like that. Um, you can kind of see that people are relying on on, on their religious values or, or spiritual values for, for to make decisions on those things, yeah. Both Hayek and Beblin talk about the importance of cultural atavism in explaining our modern attitudes. Of course, they arrive at different conclusions from said observation. But focusing on your point of view and following their own point of contention, I want to ask, what happens when the world change, changes far faster than our ability to adapt to it? Yeah. Yeah. So from the perspective of the model, what will happen is you could be in, a, in an equilibrium where the world's not changing, right? and everybody's following the traditions of the previous generation, and you've kind of converged, uh, evolved uh, in a way that you're choosing the right actions. The traditions are functional, they're beneficial. And then uh, what happens when the world changes? Well, then what's gonna happen is you'll need to change your action or you would need to change your traditions, but that happens in the model slowly, right? So there are certain types of individuals who we call you know, rational or non-traditionalists that will change right away. But those that follow tradition, uh, so think of those that follow religion, for example, or think it's important for, to maintain traditional values, those individuals will only con converge to the new optimal action or the new optimal behavior very slowly over many, many, many generations, right? And so, so one implication of a change in the environment is some people will change their behavior, others won't. They'll all believe they're doing the right thing. And then there'll be disagreement within society, right? And so at first, only a few people will change. Eventually, in the long run, after 10, 20, 30 generations, everyone will change. But during that intermediate period, uh, there'll be some that have changed, some that ha haven't. So some will have modern values, some will have more traditional values. And there'll be genuine disagreement. Uh, they'll all think they're doing the right thing. Uh, and they'll all think the other group is doing the wrong thing. And so, yeah, so I think that's an important impl implication of the model. So if we try to apply the model to our historical experience, would you say then that there will be more disagreement today than, say, before the Industrial Revolution, just because the sake of the, the change in the, in the world is much more faster today? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so prior to the Industrial Revolution, if you think of, you know, um, living standards are definitely much more stagnant. And also, I, I would say social change, political change. And then after the Industrial Revolution, you have economic growth, and I think a lot of social cultural uh, change as a result as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And then the other thing, also, if you think of the environment, the world is literally the environment. Uh, there has been a lot of environmental change, and now there are environmental problems that the world is facing, 
which are new. And so we're facing those for the first time. So, so yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think if we're to characterize the world, uh, do this through the lens of the model, characterize the world after say 1700, it would be one of, of uh, frequent change in the environment or rapid change. Yeah. What would be the limits of your, your, the model that you have? Because maybe I will be overstanding here because if reality itself may depend on the belief systems that we hold, so first, what do you think that is the case? And second, what will be the implications of endogenizing the change in the state of the world to actually our beliefs? Yeah, I think that's, that's a fantastic question. And actually one that I um, explored in uh, a handbook chapter, a recent handbook of historical economics. And I think, I think the title is uh, History is Evolution. Um, so if you think of, well, kind of in my description, I kind of describe things as the environment just changes or it doesn't change. It's kind of random when it changes. In the original model, that's what, that was the case. But you can think about, based on our discussion just now, about the Industrial Revolution and the change that's occurred since then. Well, the Industrial Revolution is not exogenous. That was because of human action, human innovation. And so um, I extended the model to try, and, to try and capture that, where individuals that go out and learn information to choose the optimal action in their environment, I assume that that also leads to, to uh, innovation and technological change. And technological change then changes the environment or is the environment. So in that setting where uh, the, how dynamic the environment is, is endogenous to the number of individuals who don't follow tradition, you get actually two equilibria. So in one equilibrium, uh, there are not many people that follow tradition. So there's a lot of change in the environment. When the environment changes a lot, then tradition isn't that beneficial, right? Because uh, what's optimal for you might be different than what was optimal in the previous generation. And so you get this equilibrium uh, in, 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 in that case where lots of change, uh, low amount of tradition, and then that leads to lots of change. So there's an, also another equilibrium where there's not much change. And because there's not much change, then tradition works quite well. So there's a lot of people that follow tradition. Not many people innovate. And then that leads to not much change, right? And so, uh, so that is, you know, if, if you take that seriously, uh, societies could be stuck in or, or in one equilibrium or the other. And so that's kind of very different from the original model and uh, is important implication of endogenizing how dynamic the world is. The other aspect that I would like to ask is, within your model, of course, you emphasize the vertical transmission of values with across generations. But what what uh, implications would have to actually also take into account the horizontal ones inter between our peers, for example? Will just accelerate the, the the importance of culture, or will it create more equilibrium? Yeah, I think I think. Um... So the model has vertical, which is parents to children, and but it also allows for oblique, which is anyone in the previous generation could influence me. So not just my parents, it could be my uh, uh, university professor, school teacher, priest, uh, whatever. And so, th so that's allowed. Um, but there isn't, as you say, ho purely horizontal transmission. So that's individuals from the same generation copying one another. Um, and one way to think of this is within economics, there's been a number of models. So I think like Abhijit Banerjee's model about herd behavior, that's really about horizontal transmission and people learning from others. And we do know that we can get cascades, multiple equilibria in cases where you do have horizontal transmission. So exactly as you said, I think uh, if you brought that in and people are not only copying people from the previous generation, but those within their own 
generation as well, then you could probably get multiple equilibria as well. Yeah. And then so everyone's doing something just because everyone else is doing it. Right. And so you would also have to have a bias where um, you're you tend to want to do things that everyone else is doing. And uh, and when you have that, you can get maladaptive equilibria. So equilibria where that are bad for everybody, but everyone's doing it because everyone else is doing it and it is locally stable. Right. Yeah. I've always found the Hegelian, Hegelian dialectical approach of historical change interesting. And I mean, I've only read a bit about Hegel, but the idea of synthesis and anti-synthesis a thesis has always particularly intrigued me. And the way that I will apply that system into the world is through my own bias observation. And to put it just in a concrete example, is that I found, for example, that parents have affected my and some of my friends' opinions in opposite direction. So, I, for example, I have friends that grew up in a very conservative households and went to Catholic schooling, and now they are actually very anti-religion adults. They are very secular and opposed to everything like that. On the opposite case, for example, I grew up in a very secular and quite agnostic household, and I actually found myself growing more interested in religion as large. Do you think that you could apply this kind of mechanism into a cultural transmission model by which it's not random, which the people that I choose where, where my culture derives from out of a selection, but it's actually a reaction against the, the, the people that have already the values. It could be a, a negative reaction or it could be a reinforcing reaction. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's uh, definitely right. And um, to some extent, it's an empirical question how much persistence is there? So what's the rule and what's the exception? So is it the rule that you tend to follow your parents? Um, or is is the rule that you do the opposite and there's some sort of yeah, uh, lack of non-persistence and, and even a backlash? So, so certainly there's evidence of uh, backlash being a real effect. So Brian Wheaton, who's a, a brand new assistant professor at UCLA, documents uh, looking at US history many, many cases of backlash uh, against laws which are implemented, which uh, the laws like anti-miscegenation laws were against the moral views of people at the time. And then they, he, he finds evidence of backlash. Um, so that's, that's definitely uh, the case. And there's, I think, human behavior uh, or, you know, that's probably an important part of, of, of human behavior. So the model doesn't have that, but you could imagine there's kind of transition matrices where you, uh, some people uh, adopt the behaviors or the values and beliefs of their parents, but then some people adopt the values and beliefs of someone else. So, that, so that's allowed in the model actually because there is this oblique transmission. So you could go to you could come from a very conservative background, you could go to university and have a very progressive uh, professor, for example, and that individual could really, really influence you. And so that's allowed in the model basically because you are adopting the values and beliefs from somebody, from one person in the previous generation. And it might not be the same values and beliefs as your parents. And, and that's actually the mechanism about how you get progress when the world changes, even the people that follow tradition, right? They also converge over time to the new, more progressive, correct behavior. And it's because they're copying somebody from the previous generation and it's not only their parents, but it's other individuals, right? And over time, more and more other individuals from the previous generation will adopt the the more progressive, um, the more progressive and more recent behavior. And so, of course, the real world's more difficult, and you have movement in all directions, and and there's multiple domains which the model doesn't have. And so, uh, but the, but the last thing I'll say is um, this is not 
based on the model or any evidence, just an introspection. I think what often happens is you want to be different from your parents. And so there is this kind of backlash or this kind of attempt to be independent and different, but then you kind of, you find yourself saying things or doing things. And then it reminds you of your father, for example. And you're like, and it kind of, you're like, oh, I can't believe that. And so it's like, you know, almost like at a conscious level, you're trying to be independent and different, but then just, it just happens. And it's probably, you know, through learning and early childhood development that you end up being similar to them. And so, um, so I think that's a reality too, and something we want to understand, but uh, yeah, but I think it's all, all super, super fascinating. Within your paper, you end up talking about potential for policy opportunities. And the potential lies basically in their ability to solve the mismatches, which you define again as the divide between the action dictated by tradition and the best action in the current environment. However, you also talk about policies that damage more by misidentifying mismatches. So how easy is really to identify what a true mismatch? Yeah, so exactly as you say, so just... In the model, everyone's optimizing. They're doing the best that they can. But in equilibrium, you get mismatches, right? And because pe- we rely on these heuristics, which are beneficial, then uh, the actions people are taking are uh, different than what's optimal in that static sense uh, for their environment. So policies, if you could nudge people right, uh, to adopt a different action, then uh, you can make them better off. But exactly as you say, and as I just uh, described some examples in the forthcoming AAR, AAR paper, that uh, there are many cases in the world where I think in the back of policymakers' minds, they thought, oh, we're helping these people out because they have these traditions, which to us seem strange and backward, and we're going to try and help them modernize. And there's lots of examples of then this Western push making uh, groups worse off. And so just so to answer your question, I think it's very difficult <laughs> to find out uh, or to determine uh, whether there is mismatch and whether this policy will help alleviate the mismatch. One thing I hope my article does is actually um, promotes policymakers and academics to think about mismatch. I think in the back of our minds, uh, in many cases, if we're trying to promote, for example, uh, lower rates of fertility, if we're trying to get... Um, mobile groups to settle down and become sedentary. Um, we have to be thinking that, oh, well, the their traditions aren't good for development, and that's why we're trying to promote these other, these other traditions uh, or these other actions. And I think having a discussion in a more explicit, uh, uh, maybe analysis of this, that, you know, this is really what we think, this is why we're doing it, will then allow us to... to to say, are we right, right? And so instead of just assuming, well, yeah, we of course, lower fertility is better for development, right? Or of course, lower fertility is even better for the society. Um, I think that's something that we need to, yeah, need, need, need to think about. And um, so, yeah, so I think it's implicitly in the, in the minds of policymakers, but we should need, need to make it explicit. And that's the first step to identifying, is there mismatch uh, in this setting or not? Um, at, at some level, if we really think people are optimizing, then we don't need any interventions, right? So there has to be something that's that's some mismatch by some definition uh, in the minds of, of, of policymakers. You started by discussing the concept of notch. You just talk about it. So yeah. I would like to ask, how related your cultural approach is to the overall framework by behavioral economics, if at all? 
so I think there's some similarities, but I also think it's different. So if you think of like the nudge, you know, it's, you don't want to overgeneralize, but I think the typical person that when they, when you think of nudge and the nudge framework, it's basically that the human, the human brain is imperfect or that there are these kind of universal behavioral biases. And then we can exploit our knowledge about those and then nudge people in the right direction, right? So in, in this setting, the biases really aren't um, behavioral in the sense that they're universal, the cognitive biases, psychological biases. I would think of them more as, as cultural biases, right? So they are these values and beliefs which are transmitted, um, and but they're just not suited for the current environment, right? And um, so they were... They were correct if you want to use that term for a previous environment but now the world has changed and so that now they're so so there are some similarities but there is also a lot of a lot of differences and also i think nudging in this environment or changing people's beliefs values in this environment is a lot lot more tricky and ethically difficult right because um it's not like oh there's this kind of universal bias and we can make everyone better off exactly as you said uh, changing uh, b- values or behavior in this setting really depends on whether there's mismatch or not, right? And uh, and that's the tricky thing to to determine. And there could be mismatch in one place, but not another, or at one time period, or not another. It's not a universal thing that's easy to figure out. So, yeah. To end our talk, I would like to dwell a bit on potential political philosophical ramifications of your framework. Can we, for example, assess differences between conservative and progressive values as differences in the perceived importance of the main parameters in your model, about, for example, the stability of the environment and about the opportunity cost of learning the state of the world? Yeah, so that I would say no. I, I would The way I would fit it into the model is there has been change, right? There has been the U.S. historically, for example, was based on slave production, there was a lot less gender equality. Um, there's been a move from agriculture to manufacturing, plantation agriculture to manufacturing to services. And so the world is, has, has changed, definitely. Uh, there's been globalization as well. Um, and so I would say, in general, thinking about different values and beliefs, or including political values and beliefs, I tend to think of that as, uh, and then if there is disagreement, it's because the world has changed and then there's some change in the beliefs of one group, but the other group is is lagging a bit behind, right? Uh, in terms of of the change, so that's how I would how I would think of it actually, in in this setting. And then one thing, if you really take the model literally, if you wanted to figure out uh, what group is the more traditional group, what group is the progressive group, you could look at and see over time which ways are the values headed towards, right? And because in the model you move from a traditional beliefs a belief and then over time there's slow convergence to this new belief that fits the more modern world right and so so that's how you would do it i think the the one upshot or implication of of the model which i think is nice is in the real world you talk to your friends and family and they might be republican um and then they're talking about democrats and they would just say oh you know um yeah, more or less, they're evil. And you talk to Democrats, and then they're talking about Republicans and say, oh, they're evil. And they just think there's some, you know, they, they, the way I'd put it is you really can't understand the moral framework of the other group. You just think they're, I, I can't, you hear this all the time, I can't believe they think that. Or, um, But the model would tell you, no, both groups have a moral framework. They have a way of understanding the world. It's a logic, it holds together. 
but because of the dynamics and the evolutionary nature of the world and then the values and beliefs which we all hold that um that there are these disagreements and uh yeah and then the other thing i guess it is if you again take the model really seriously is uh it is true that one set of beliefs are better suited for the world today right and so and so that's another implication but i think the most important is kind of understanding that these differences are evolve and, and there is an explanation and we can you know and there is a logic it's not just for whatever random reason some subset of the population is evil right or is is dumb or whatever the yeah the explanations are often by the other group yeah. well thank you very much Nathan terrific thanks so much it was a very fun discussion Economics mostly studies the process of decision-making from a calculative approach. Rethinking the role of culture from an economic perspective permits us to study behavior that at first sight may appear irrational. Culture, defined as socially learned information, is especially relevant when we deal with complex phenomena and interactions. It certainly influences how we behave by saving on the need to reinvent what is known to work. Tradition understood as a process where culture is transmitted across generations, may then even be the optimal strategy to follow. Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.